Today at Reader's Corner, Samantha Silva, author of Mr. Dickens and His Carol. I'm Bob Custer. Welcome to Reader's Corner. Generations have grown up with the tales spun by Charles Dickens. Characters like Ebenezer Scrooge and young Tiny Tim have become cultural icons and a reminder to take stock of our lives, celebrate each day, and care for those around us. Just in time for the holidays, Samantha Silva offers up Mr. Dickens and His Carol, her whimsical novel that reimagines the twists and turns that led Dickens to write his famous Christmas story and one of my favorites of the year. Her book is funny, clever, and touching with a surprise ending that is a perfect Dickensian fit. The New York Times recently praised the novel in its review, citing Samantha's ability to convincingly portray Dickens' restless energy and to inhabit the author's sensitivity to London's atmosphere, its chancellors and urchins, and its cobblestones and fog. With Christmas Day just around the corner, we're airing an encore edition of our interview with Samantha Silva. She is an author and screenwriter based in Boise. Over her career, she has sold film projects to Paramount, Universal, New Line Cinema, and TNT. A film adaptation of her short story, The Big Burn, won the One Potato Short Screenplay Competition at the 2017 Sun Valley Film Festival. Samantha graduated from Boise State University and Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. She has lived in London three times and describes herself as a forever Dickens devotee. Mr. Dickens and His Carol is Samantha's debut novel, and she joins us in the studio today to talk about it. Samantha Silva, welcome to Reader's Corner. Thank you, Bob. I'm happy to be here. So, Sam, when I see John Hopkins School of International Studies, I would think that if you were going to write a book, it would be about Brexit, uh, not exactly Dickens. So share with us your uh, apparent lifelong passion for well, Dickens. Actually, I wouldn't say lifelong. I came to Dickens late, as I've come to so many things, including being writing a novel. But... Um, a friend of mine, also a BSU grad, who's a, whom I've written with sometimes, called me years ago and said, we ought to write a ghost story anthology movie about Dickens coming up with Carol, because, of course, Victorians loved ghost stories. And she'd heard that that's how he created the Carol out of the series of ghost stories that were told around the hearth. But the more I read about it, the more I realized, well, that wasn't, that wasn't how he came up with the Carol at all. He invented it as a money spinner for himself. He came up with the idea of a Christmas sure. book because Martin Chuzzlewit was an utter fl- In fact, he was in the middle of writing Chuzzlewit when his publishers actually came to him and said, we're going to – Chuzzlewit's a flop and we're going to have to deduct from your pay 50 pounds sterling per month, which would have been a tremendous loss. It really would have ruined him. And he was overextended. All of that is true. In every way, he just moved to this grand house. And anyway, the more I read about the true story, the more I thought that's that's the story to tell. But we sort of let it drop and a couple years later – I woke up one morning and knew the entire story and sat down to write it and never looked back. Tell us, and now I'm talking about your novel, not necessarily the literal translation of his life, but set up the challenge Dickens faces, not so much from his publisher. You've just explained that. This, these guys wanted their money. But more importantly, what was going on in his life with his, his wife, his father, his new son? 
Dickens at the time, there's so much at the start of the novel that's true about Dickens' life. He was maybe 32 years old when he wrote A Carol. He already had four children with fifth on the way. He had, as I said, just moved to one Devonshire Terrace, an incredibly grand house with a grand lifestyle. Um, He and his wife had expensive tastes. They entertained. But he also was a great philanthropist, and he put his money and his mouth and his pen where his heart was. And he often, he was an activist for organizations that were trying to help the poor and oppressed, and he also started many of them. Field Lane Ragged School, which is mentioned in the novel, was was a project of, of Dickens to help sort of the orphaned children of London. Um, his father had gone to debtor's prison, and not only did his father depend on Charles Dickens for money, but his extended family of relatives, friends of relatives, people he got begging letters regularly in the mail. And so he really was profoundly overextended. And when Chapman Hall came to him and said, you're going to have to pay the debt you owe us, he thought, well, I ought to write a Christmas book and get myself out of debt. But I thought, that's the true story. But the great story is a man who is presented with that and refuses, who refuses the call of writing a Christmas book. And so that, that was really the genesis of the idea of the novel. Mm-hmm. Now, what I found so clever about the book was really two things. First of all, the distinctive voice that you used in your book, which reminded me of reading one of his books. And secondly, the fact that along the way I'm stumbling on all these characters that, aha, that's where he got the idea for Tiny Tim and that's where Ebenezer Scrooge comes in. When you say you woke up one morning and you got the idea, I don't imagine you had all those little ideas all planted yet. And I mean, how did you go about finding these connections that you managed to weave into the novel uh, in Dickens' real life, in your novel, that is, and then they wind up in his Christmas Carol? Well, that was actually a lot of fun. In some ways, because I started as a screenwriter, I'm very much a structuralist. I need to know the bones of the story in order to start writing. And that was, and that, at least when I started to write a novel and was daunted by the task, mm-hmm. I did have the bones. And I knew that the job was to find the, the, the muscle and the flesh and the juicy bits of fat where, right. <laughs> where they were warranted. And so I had that. And along the way, then the writing becomes an adventure story, your own own adventure story as a writer and you stumble upon things you stumble upon opportunities and they sort of you know just show themselves to you and say here I am you know this is your moment and so I I wanted I knew that I wanted to find those connections and which are winks and nods really to Dickens' own work. And, and some of them, you know, there was an Ebenezer Temperance Society and Dickens hated the Temperance Society. And he really <laughs> did say, why would we take away what, you know, what little fun people have? <laughs> so, you know, finding those smaller connections right. that could be, that, could, yeah. that I could weave into the tapestry of the story. was So, so when I refer to distinctive voice, uh, and again, I'm, I'm not an English major. So you have to understand that when I read the distinctive voice, I'm thinking, ah, that stilted English language that I remember reading when I did have to read Dickens. And and I guess the question is, from an editing standpoint, how easy is it to slip out of that when you're writing the book? And is there a lot of editing where you go through this book 20 times and it's like, that's not Dickens enough. And then you have to adjust the writing accordingly. Did that take longer than it might take in a novel where you're using good old American 21st century English, for example? Well, 
I think that both things are true. To some extent, I felt like this novel was dictated to me, that I was there at the keyboard and Dickens had inhabited me. He got under my skin. And um, I remember my kids were very young when I was writing it and I would get up at five o'clock in the morning for those, you know, two or three hours before they woke up so I could just take dictation, basically. And, and it was really like having his voice in my head. And I don't know how that happens. I'm sure so many other writers have talked to you about that. But you get a voice in your head and they begin, I talk to myself, I talk out loud, and it's just this voice that comes through me. And I say in the, um, in the acknowledgments when I thank my children that I think they really came to think that Dickens was one of the family and might show up any <laughs> night for dinner. So, um, but the other part of it is that I would say, I had to reel it back sometimes because you can go over the top with Dickens. He is so over the top. And it's also about grounding him, making him real and relatable and where you need to Mm. push it and where you need to pull it back Mm. so that you're with him emotionally and you're really in his interior world. You're listening to Reader's Corner, and I'm talking with Samantha Silva about her debut novel, Mr. Dickens and His Carol. I can relate to that because I was so fascinated by your book that I actually picked up a Dickens novel or two after I read your book. And I put them down as quickly as I picked them up. (laughs) (laughs) Simply because that stilted language, no no teacher was over my shoulder saying, you must read this for a grade, right? Right. And I had other things to read that were far easier to read than Dickens. So I can certainly appreciate how you really had to be careful that you didn't get so much into this that you're going to lose the reader you're trying to sell the book to. Right. And I also want to say that you know, he called himself Boz when he started writing. He was really doing. Oh, I was going to ask you about that. What is? It? How do you get the Boz name? Yeah, B O Z. B O Z. B O Z. And I, I say Boz. I think that's correct. Yeah. Well, it, you know, it was purported to have come from his younger brother Fred, who couldn't say his name oh. and called him this or that. But but he liked it as a moniker, and he called himself the inimitable Boz. And he was he was inimitable. And I. You know, I went into it very much with a great respect. I didn't think I could copy Dickens. I didn't think I could be Dickens. But I thought I could find some approximation of the language that would feel real and, again, ground him. And I wanted to be inside of him. And so um, I, I find, I mean, I've also put down Dickens novels. I'm, you know, everyone reads A Tale of Two Cities in high school. Right. It's my least favorite Dickens novel. I don't <laughs> think it's the one high schoolers. Up, <laughs> I don't think it's what high schoolers should be reading. Um, and then, so sometimes I put them down as well. But I did save, I have to say, I did save myself Bleak House, which I've never read, as a reward for when I finished all of this. So I just started Bleak House, which many people think is his best book. And I'm very excited about reading it. But I'm in love with him. I mean, I'm, I've spent years and years trying to understand this very complicated flawed man who had a heart as big as the world. And so, you know, I say that this book for me is very much a fan letter and kind of a love Mm -hmm. letter to Dickens, saying that I know that, I see you, I see that you lived with a lot of darkness. People now would say that he was probably manic depressive, almost certainly. Oh, is that right? Yes, yes, Mm -hmm. very, lots of highs and lots of lows. Mm -hmm. Um, And the lows he did deal with by these these famed night walks through London, often, Mm -hmm. you know, upwards of 20 20 miles. I was going to ask you, really 20 miles? Because I thought, my gosh, that's a long trip. It is a long, yes, yeah. all through, you know, across the across the Thames two or three times. Yeah. And he knew every nook and cranny yeah. of London. Yeah. Um, so, he, you know, he's a really complicated 
man, yeah. and I'm drawn to that. I'm drawn to complex, flawed mm-hmm. men who are also charming and charismatic and fascinated with the world and of the world. And he was all of mm-hmm. that. And you know, was a great champion of those who had less of the have-nots, which I think makes him still relevant today. Well, you not only got the man down, but you also got London down in the 19th century. And some of your reviewers have commented that, and I, and I felt like I was walking the streets of London in those years. Uh, you lived in London three times. I visit London occasionally. Uh, I'm there as a tourist and I'm there to see a grandchild and kids and we're at nice restaurants and I never walked away. I've obviously never been in the right places in London where I could have any sense of what 19th century London must have been like. In your life there, living there, did you actually try to find some of those spaces Uh, if they're around? Maybe there's nothing there anyway, but is there any place where you can walk and feel like – This gives me some sense of what London must have been like in the 19th century. I think Victorian London is very much alive and well. And you have to squint your eyes a little bit to sort of get rid of modern signage and and paved streets and that kind of thing. But the architecture is very much still still from that period. And um, so much of it is preserved. My fear about... Places like London, which I, I love London, and it also got under my yeah. skin. It's very much part of my my yeah. own story. Um, is that they become a Disneyland? Mm-hmm. That cities like that become that you have a kind of you know heightened, exaggerated, embellished. Let's mm-hmm. s- let's do a send up of all these things instead of keeping them as pure as they possibly can be. But there are moments when you pass a doorway or a series of doorways where on the street where Dickens lived, or even the Dickens Museum is a well preserved example of a house that he did live in and raised his family in and they've tried to be very true to it but so i see all these places that he wrote about clarkenwell and cheapside and they're all still there even if they're now wealthy and gentrified and not what they were then i i can very much envision what they Mm -hmm. were when the streets were made of cobblestone well you not only envisioned them but you put it down in writing because your street scenes in some of those situations are just like remarkable. I mean I felt like I was reading the Dickens novel. There's so much writing and so much journalistic writing about London at the time. I mean as a writer, you know sometimes you think, "Oh god, how many times can I talk about fog?" and how many different <laughs> right, ways can exactly. I talk about fog? Yeah. Which which Dickens did too. But the the writing the the source material is vast and unending. So I had a great time mm-hmm. doing that. So the way, the way Dickens wrote, um, it's not, in fact, you made a little crack in your novel somewhere about uh, his prediction regarding big box bookstores or something. And you, <laughs> you can tell us about that. I thought that was kind of funny. But, but more importantly, I guess I was just kind of, kind of interested in this idea of um, Dickens writing his works but in those days, the big publishers were not around, so they were serialized. And I mean, I, I know that Victorian literature has been serialized. That's no big secret. But for Dickens, I think I heard you say or someone say that he would actually correct his work based on the reaction he was getting from his readers. So like for the next, the next installation could change a character's development based on what oh. he was out there hearing on the street. Do you ever hear about oh, that? Oh, that's interesting. I've, 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 heard, I've heard it in a sort of larger sense, for instance, when, when he heard back from people after Oliver Twist that um, 
you know, they didn't like the description of Fagan and being so Jewish and exaggerated. Yeah. And he changed, he took that to heart mm-hmm. and changed that in later editions of the novel. But I, I hadn't heard that in the next actual month, the next serial, he would change direction. Um, but he was very sensitive to readers and, and to their devotion to him. He wrote for his readers and he, while, I don't know that Dickens was the first. There were other serialized novels, but he he popularized the serial novel, and in part by giving voice to people who hadn't appeared in novels before. And so people who couldn't read would gather around in the gin shops, and somebody would have a number, you know, the newest number of, of Oliver Twist or whatever it was, and read to a group of people who hung on his every word. All of those scenes are true. That, that, and so he... he expanded his readership to just an extraordinary extent that no one had seen before. He really was a literary rock star in his time. He was, everyone knew him by sight. He was a dandy as well. He was, he was you know, considered kind of very flamboyant and, and well-dressed. But people also called him by name and they felt intimate with him. And I just love that, you know, that idea that he connected in that way mm-hmm. with his readers. And he wrote for those people. Mm-hmm. He didn't just write for the reading public. Mm-hmm. He, he wrote for the public who wanted to hear stories about themselves. Mm-hmm. Didn't you also write about how he would try to escape uh, his, his popularity? I thought I read once or twice where he was looking for little places where he could be, where he wouldn't be recognized so he could get back to work, so to speak. Well, that is that is the conceit of the novel, yeah. really, of this novel, that he goes on his own Scrooge-like journey mm-hmm. and begins to, as he sees his own sort of popularity sinking, you know, he begins to reject his public and not want to have, it, to have anything to do with them and hide from them and to write a story and be left alone and not to be hounded by beggars and right. charities and, and everyone who wanted, and relatives, everyone who wanted a piece of him. So that's a conceit of the novel. I don't know that, that Dickens did do that. He loved his popularity <laughs> and the accolades and the attention. Right. And I don't know that in real life he ever shied from yeah. it. He did travel quite a bit, but um, I don't know that he shied away from right. that. So I found myself pulling for certain of your characters, in, including Dickens, and actually imagining what was going to happen and thinking, now if I was in Sam's brain now, I know what I'd do on the next five pages. And, and to me, that's the ultimate compliment to an author when you're engaging the reader to the extent that you're turning them into writers themselves, maybe not on the printed page, but at least in their brains as they're thinking through what's going to come next. And nowhere is that more evident than Eleanor Lovejoy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tell us about Eleanor Lovejoy. Again, we're going we're gonna to do this interview, of course, uh, and we're doing a pretty good job of it since we're over 20 minutes into it without giving away anything. <laughs> All right. Tell us about Eleanor Lovejoy and the role she plays here uh, with one major exception. You don't want to talk about the ultimate Eleanor Lovejoy. <laughs> okay. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> well, I wanted to write about a man who loses faith in himself and loses faith in humanity as well, and who worries, as Dickens did sometimes, about his ability to continue to, you know, uphold his celebrity and continue to write bestsellers, which they were. And I think the idea of the muse is so important. And he did believe, he did have this 
early love affair with Maria Biedenel, and she absolutely scorned him and, as I say, made mincemeat of his heart. <laughs> and he never for- forgot that. He believed that Maria Biedenel was his first muse. And in fact, her rejection of him was what propelled him to a writing life so that he could sort of prove that he was good enough and talented enough and smart enough and that she was the one who'd made the mistake. (laughs) (laughs) And he did, in fact, meet with Maria Biedenel later in his life when she approached him. But the idea of the muse was still important to him. And when he became a man who, who had celebrity and a house and children and a wife and all of these responsibilities, I think he did often feel that he was disconnected from, from, from his muse. And so Eleanor Lovejoy is my own creation of a, the invention of a muse for him who takes him. We think she's taking him on one journey, but in fact, she's taking him on another and um, she is, I hope, an exemplar sort of of all, the, of all the good people in Dickens' novels. He ha- is said to have met Fyodor Dostoevsky in, in the 1860s, although this, this may be apocryphal, and told Dostoevsky that he felt all the good people in his novels were the part of him that wanted to be those people, wanted to live up to that, to that sort of humanity, their humanity. And all the worst people were exaggerations of his own flaws. So I hope that Eleanor Lovejoy has the qualities of the best people in his novels. And, um, but she is the mysterious Eleanor Lovejoy. And the ride he thinks he's going on is not the one he's on. Exactly. Well, we'll say no more because I don't <laughs> want to ruin that. Uh, that's, that's the best part of the book right there. I'm Bob Kustra, host of Reader's Corner, and my guest is Samantha Silva, author of Mr. Dickens and His Carol. Let's talk about the fact that he had some competitors, shall we call them, uh, colleagues in the business at the time. William Thackeray comes to mind. You work him into the novel. How'd you do that? And Well, tell us first of all about, about their relationship. Well, a Thackeray... They were, in fact, competitors. Thackeray was probably a little bit behind Dickens, but wanted very much the same sort of celebrity. <laughs> and with Vanity Fair, he got it. Yeah. Um, but what's true, and I love this about, there's a dinner party scene where John Forster, who's Charles Dickens' sort of more or less agent, self-appointed literary agent, gathers all these literati sort of from London around. And those were all real people, and they, and they were colleagues and friends, the Trollops, William Thackeray, mm-hmm. Wilkie Collins, who was the young darling of the group, the Carlyles, Thomas and Jane Carlyle. And so it was very easy to find in, in letters and things that they, in conversations, they said these things about <laughs> Dickens. I mean, Thackeray was always making the case that Dickens was, was writing, you know, these sort of cloyingly sentimental novels and that people wanted gossip and scandal and satire, not gushing displays <laughs> of the heart. And I, and I think that, um, the Dickens, that, that, was, that was his passion. And um, I read recently that it may have been in an article that John Irving wrote called In Defense of Sentimentality, but that what we love about A Christmas Carol is Dickens going full bore on the sentimentality surrounding Christmas and all of those things about counting our blessings and being feeling connected to our own humanity and to and to others, especially others who have less. But that the rest of the year we don't we <laughs> accuse him of the same thing. Right. And so there, there's a, there's another moment for, for me probably one of the most important scenes in the novel. Again, without giving too much away is when Dickens hits rock bottom and, and Eleanor Lovejoy reminds him that, that every book he's ever written is a book about Christmas, which I think is about the feeling we must have for each other 
without which we're lost. So this reminds me of something you and I were talking about before this interview, and that is the uh, coincidence of a movie that is uh, coming out about the same time as our interview here. And and that's The, the Man Who Invented Christmas, which was based on a 2008 novel. Uh, how bizarre that, uh, you know, you started this project years ago, and uh, who would have thunk that at the precise moment your novel comes out, this other guy's book is turned into a movie. Uh, as I said to you before the show, I wouldn't be at all surprised that uh, people always go in and pick up books of movies they liked. But in this case, they get two different versions, so to speak. But tell us about the irony here, because there's a little <laughs> bit of irony in this story. There is. And there's a part of me that hates to plug another movie, <laughs> another story about Dickens and his Carol. But it was actually a nonfiction book, The Man Who Invented Christmas, that tells the true story yeah. of Dickens writing the Carol. And um, I've known about it for for. A, a while, never thought it really could be a movie because I never think the true story is the best story. Absolutely. <laughs> that we learn so much more from fictionalized, sure. embellished versions of the truth. Right. But yes, I, I had written this as, as a screenplay and sold it four different times and uh, finally decided that I was going to try to give it life as a novel. And meanwhile, lo and behold, they get a script together and a movie. And so it is a great irony to me that that book that started as a nonfiction book ends up as a movie movie and my movie <laughs> ends up as a book but i i think that as with jane austen people who love charles dickens have an insatiable appetite for it and i hope that more is more that anyone who cares about dickens and christmas and loves victorian literature um, loves a good yarn right. will take every opportunity well to this read is about a great it. yarn so what what happens to Samantha Silva's career as a screenwriter of the past, a novelist of the present? <laughs> so are we switching gears here and can we expect uh, a, a new novel along the way? And the heck with those screenplays. This that's, is more fun. That's right. That's right. I did. I did have a wonderful time doing this writing it as a novel. It was a, it's the opposite. I think a, a discipline that's opposite to screenwriting. And I do have a two-book deal with my publisher, Flatiron Books nice. and Macmillan, so Great. they are expecting another novel. Um, and after years and years of screenwriting, I'm, I'm still a student of it. I'm devoted to it. I love movies, and I love, I love it as a way of storytelling. But this was a far richer, deeper more rewarding experience, I have to say. It's very solitary. Exactly. <laughs> You're alone in your room for I've however never, many I've years. I've never talked to anybody in your shoes that has said anything different <laughs> than that, that's for sure. Right. So, so here's my idea. I, again, I'm halfway through the book and I'm thinking, I know Samantha Silva well enough to give her some advice on how to construct the rest of her career. <laughs> There's all kinds of great classics out there that people wonder, how did, how did he ever write this? And... Uh, I could actually see you doing these novels like where you're figuring out Dickens on The Christmas Carol. You pick the next classic, something like that, if there is anything like that. I guess there's not. But um, do you ever think about doing this again in the same fashion, so to speak? Well, yes, um, I have. But I also, I also don't want to be cornered into that. I'd love to write. I'd love to write a contemporary novel mm -hmm. um, that because in some ways – 
this is not, while it is my voice and my story, it's also a song of praise to Dickens, and sure. it's very much about him. And I have another voice. I have a contemporary voice, and I love the, I love the idea of trying my hand at a contemporary novel. But I think there's certainly more historical <laughs> fiction in me, um, because I really, I really did love the experience of it. Does Flatiron Books give you the flexibility to do whatever you want to do as far as the next project is I concerned? Ha- I pitch mm-hmm. them ideas uh-huh. and, and they say, ooh, yeah. we love that idea. I or, so I think that's probably the next thing on my plate. Yeah, that's really great. Yeah. Well, um, we've run out of time for, for uh, any more questions, but I do want to remind our listeners that this book, Mr. Dickens and His Carol, is charming. It's creative. It's clever. Uh, it brings us back to a period of time that we all know something about, if nothing else, because of English classes. Uh, but um, I would think that it's a great Christmas gift. It just is a perfect Christmas gift. And I, I saw the hard copy uh, the other day, and uh, I thought, oh, this is going to fly off the shelves. You've already been to Rediscovered Books uh, for your um, your reading there. Are you going to do any traveling, and are you going to do any uh, bookstores Outside of Boise? What I know at the moment, the only thing on the agenda is that I'll go to New York in uh-huh. in mid-December. They do Housing Works, which is an AIDS support organization in New York, does a marathon reading of A Christmas Carol every year, oh. which we used to do here at the cabin um, some years ago. But I'm on a, I'll be on a panel the night before of authors who've been influenced by Dickens. New York City at Christmas time, the author making an appearance. That's really special. Samantha Silva, thank you so much for being with us today. Really enjoyed the interview. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed this encore edition of our interview with Samantha Silva. Next week, Lyanda Lynn Haupt, author of Mozart Starling. Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio. The engineer for today's show is Eric Jones. Research by Sherry Squires. Our producer is Janelle Brown. I'm Bob Kustra. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner. You can find out what's coming up next on Reader's Corner, sign up for our free email podcast, or download our free app for mobile devices on our website. That's boisestatepublicradio.org.